and welcome to another edition of Lit These Days. I'm Jessica. I'm Adam. And we're your hosts. This week, we're going to talk about what we finished reading, what we're currently reading, and then we have a really fun recommendation question from Laura at the end, so stick around for that. Yes. Um, What's new in your world, Adam? What's going on? I'm in Pittsburgh right now. I'm in the old, the old homestead. Love Pittsburgh. Grew up around <laughs> Pittsburgh. It's funny too. We uh, we have not been here for a long time because of COVID. And as soon as I got in the greater Pittsburgh area, the outskirts, if you will, I was like, ah, home. home sweet home. And then the second I hit Squirrel Hill tunnel traffic, I was like, man, f Pittsburgh. I hate this place. <laughs> like it all just I comes love, flooding back. <laughs> I love that name for the tunnel. Squirrel Hill, yeah. love that. It's uh, so there's there's the two main veins. Well, it's actually the same road. It's 376 that runs through Pittsburgh. Has two tunnels. There's the Fort Pitt Tunnel, and there is the that goes through the west, and then there's the Squirrel Hill Tunnel that goes through the east. And it causes so many traffic issues because people can't not slow down. Like they come to a stop when they come to the tunnel, and you're not supposed to even slow down when you come to the tunnel. It just bottlenecks it every day. Every day. It's so rare that you just hit the tunnel and keep going. That's crazy. No, also I get really annoyed at Minneapolis, the the interstate, because they did it so dumb. Where it's like you have twenty feet to merge onto the interstate. And it's like people are trying to get off and get on at the same exit. I've never yeah. seen an exit like that before. But it's like we're going we're going seventy miles an hour and then it's just like dead stop. Yeah. It's we had the fortune our last year in, in Pittsburgh before we moved to Virginia, we lived where the view is. When you when you see those overhead views of, of Pittsburgh, that's where we lived. So we never really hit traffic because we were always exiting when there wasn't traffic coming back in but yeah it's just i mean it's constant i know where everything is in pittsburgh and the surrounding communities because you would just have to find alternative ways to get home constantly (laughs) and get lost constantly so but that's all boring that's the traffic report we haven't i don't have any good like book stories to tell yet because we haven't gone to the bookstore in pittsburgh that i really like when we do i will have stories because there is there is a there is a crazy backstory to this bookshop it's called the caliban bookshop Um, i'm so excited for it yeah to give you a preview, uh, the owner and, a, and an accomplice had been stealing priceless works from the, from the library down the street, Carnegie Library down the street, and selling them on the internet. They're in prison now for that. But it's a complex tale. We'll get to it eventually. There's also a satanic coffee shop that I love that we're going to get to at some point. But oh we, my gosh, I'm We so haven't excited. done those things yet. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Love Pittsburgh. Miss it. Do you know, do you know how long they're in jail for? I do not. I have not kept up with the the epic since the last time we were there. We did a deep dive because we found this place, fell in love with it, looked it up, and the first thing that came up was a news headline. So then we were trying to, I was like, well, I don't feel comfortable going here and, and spending money here. Let's research the entire thing. And we eventually came to the conclusion that the owner of the bookstore, and I don't even know if he owns it anymore, while he was while he was on trial was not allowed to make any money from the bookstore so i'm not sure where the money was going but it wasn't going to him so i was like all right we're free to shop there it's good yeah sounds good to me yeah (laughs) um okay so i have i'm 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 shaking things up this week you know i've been in a really uh, a really romantic reading kick but we have to keep our listeners on their toes. So I read one of the most sad books I've ever read in my life. You're the opposite. And, <laughs> and I, okay, listen, Adam, I texted you and I said, I think you'd really like this book. And I want you to read it because I hated it, but I think that you would like it. And this book is uh, the Deep by Rivers. And I think that I might get a lot of flack for not liking this book because it is a very beloved book, but I don't get it. And let me tell you why. So first of all, this book has content warnings for trauma, self-harm, suicide ideation, hate crimes, and slavery. So there's, it's a really heavy book. It's a laundry list. Yeah. And I was so excited for this book because the premise sounded amazing. It has amazing reviews on Goodreads. I think it's got like a 3.8 out of 5 stars on Goodreads. Really good. So I was really excited. And the premise of the book is that 
in the middle passage slash slave trade times, like in the real world, it was a common practice for pregnant African women to be thrown overboard to their deaths. And Solomon tries to explore this in his book. So the offspring of those women are turned into mermaids and they build their own underground society or underwater society, I mean. And so at the beginning of the book, we meet Yetu, and she's been appointed as the historian for the mermaids, and the mermaids are known as Wajinru. I hope I'm saying that right. So that means that she's tasked with holding all of the traumatic memories of these African slave women who are thrown overboard and all of the Wajinru that have come before her. And so she holds all of these traumatic memories so the rest of her brethren don't have to. So they can just go and live their lives as without any um, crushing emotional baggage. But once per year, Yetu has to impart these memories on the other Wajinru. Because, but then she takes them back after a few days. So she has like a couple days of respite, but then she's dealing with this for, for most of her life. And it's a very lonely existence for her dealing with these memories on her own because no one else can understand what she's going through. And normally this kind of book would be right up my alley. Like I love world building. I love myth. It's kind of like a mythology, but it's rooted in truth. So I was like so excited for this. Um, and I thought it was going to be my next five-star read, but there are a few reasons why I did not like it. So I think the first part of it is on me as a reader because I like plot-driven books more than character-driven books. And this is definitely more character-driven. Uh, I did not know that going into it, but I just find character-driven novels to be more... I just find them to be boring more than more than plot uh, sure. yeah. driven books. And so I thought that Yetu was an interesting character, but I don't think that I saw enough character development from her to make this book worth reading. Also, the pacing of the book is just painfully slow in <laughs> most places, but then there are these big events that happen that are just skipped over. Like it's one paragraph and this huge this huge thing happens and then just you know, there's there's no time put to that. Yeah. And that, that confused me. Um, and then I thought the narrative was really confusing because it jumped from the third person to the first person. So it's like, yet to did X. But then randomly it switches to we did X. And I'm like, I don't understand who's talking here. And I try to go back and I was like, I have some ideas as to who was talking and I won't go into detail because that will take me a while to explain. Mm -hmm. But I, I never got the sense that I was correct in who I thought was talking. So that was really confusing to me. Could it be a collective? I know you said you didn't want to go into it, but could it be like a collective, like societal thing? That's, That's the, where I the thought. we comes from. Yeah, that's what I thought, but the the we is talking to other Wajinru. So I was like, hmm. if if it was a whole society, yeah, that would make sense, but then I don't understand why it's talking to other Wajinru. I don't know. It was very confusing. Maybe if you read it you would be we'd be able to discuss it more. I don't know. The, some things that I did like was that there was a lot of food for thought in here as to why it's important to hold on to memories, even if they're traumatic. So one of my favorite parts was when Yetu was talking about her mother not understanding how difficult it was to hold on to all these memories for decades and not have anyone to share that suffering with. And Yetu starts to impart some of these memories to her mom. Like, it's not during their ritual or anything, that once-a-year ritual. Uh, but then her mom just doesn't believe that it happened. So I pulled a quote from the book to explain it. It says, Her Amaba, her mother, didn't want to believe the things Yetu spoke about the past were true. If they were, what would it say about her as a parent to have consented to her child becoming an, a vessel of such ugliness? And I thought that was a really interesting paragraph to pull out because I think it speaks a lot to how often we try to erase traumatic history from the world and how problematic that is. Like, for example, we don't talk about the atrocious nature of the slave trade. Like, we never really learn about the horrible things that happened when we're in school. Like, like I was thinking about it too. Like, I didn't even 
learn about the fact that we had Japanese internment camps during World War II until I was in college and I read Farewell to Manzanar. That's a really good book. I like that book a lot. Yeah. Um, so I think it speaks to that and, and how we try to erase things from our memories because we don't like how they reflect on us as people and we try to kind of push those things away. But I just don't think it was fleshed out enough for me to think on it for more than that one paragraph. Like, that paragraph comes and it goes. And there's really not more put into that. So I wish that it would have been expanded upon more throughout the whole book. And I have, like, just a little a little more to talk about and then I'll be done with it. Oh, <laughs> but go ahead. This definitely sounds more up my alley than than your alley. <laughs> yeah, I'd be interested I'd be interested to discuss it. Yeah. Um, I really liked the world building aspect of it. I thought that it was a really creative premise. Um, and I I just wonder if Solomon made the book longer cuz it's only 150 pages and he oh, really I thought tried to be much longer. Yeah. No, it's only 150 pages. It's really short. And I, I wonder if he tried to expand the climax of the story or put more of that food for thought into it, if I would have liked it more. Um, and I also liked that there was LGBTQ representation in it. So there are some non- non-binary characters, and there's also a lesbian relationship. I just didn't think that they were fleshed out enough. Like, again, it's that character-driven part of it, but there's not enough time devoted to it, in my opinion. So those are my thoughts on that book. Interesting. I think that, I think that the length probably has a lot to do with it. I'm shocked that it's that short. I mean, that's, that's damn near a novella mm-hmm, at that point. For sure. And I know it's based on, I, I don't know much about the book outside of, I just, I quickly Googled it when you recommended it. I know it's based on a rap song and that might have something to do with it too. Maybe trying to stick too closely to that. I'm speculating. I know nothing about that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a rap song by uh, David Diggs, who I believe was in Hamilton. Yeah. He played uh, TJ and uh, oh, the French guy. Sorry. Sorry, history people. <laughs> People are going to come after us. Like, Lafayette. Lafayette. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's his rap group or rap collective. Yeah, yeah. I listened to the song. I got kind of sketched out. Like, at the beginning, it's it's a very, like, um, it's creepy, I think. It has kind of a, um, like, a creepy women voice. And I think it's on purpose that they made it creepy. Um, I liked it, though. I liked it, though. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. I'll... I'll I'll let our listeners uh, explore that as well. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, it's... I like character-driven books. Um, mm-hmm. Probably more than, than plot-driven books, which I think, is, I think is unusual. But it's interesting that the plot is very thin with 150 pages, and it focuses on that character-driven aspect of it. But I do like that little philosophical interlude, no matter how short it was, you know, with an expanded mm-hmm. novel. I think that that would be interesting to to explore. This is my homework assignment for you, is that you need to read it so we can discuss it. Now that I know how short it is, I will. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. But what are you or what did you finish reading? I only read one book. I with traveling this week, <laughs> I got to yesterday and was like, I haven't finished a book this week, which I try to read at least one book every week, but I did it. I'll be I honest thought. with you. I started The Deep yesterday and I finished it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, and I thought I would. I said <laughs> later on I'll talk about this book on nihilism that I'm reading, but we talked about post-truth last week. I think we're going to go out of order on on episodes, but at some point I'll talk about the the post-truth book, which is part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series. And they're great little 200-page books, very easy to read on on modern philosophy. And uh, I I didn't Nihilism is a tough read, <laughs> Surpri- <laughs> unsurprisingly a tough read. Uh, so I didn't burn through much this week. I took a break from War and Peace, which Tolstoy, it's not you, it's me. Uh, <laughs> just trying to get through all of that novel in one chunk is, it's still great. But I'm like, I want to read some, I want to read some other things. For sure. So very much not what you read this week. I read uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the ultimate black and white collection, volume one. Uh, I love that. Yeah, so this is the original run of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is interesting. I'd never read the original run, but I knew it was like darker, 
like I knew it wasn't a kid's uh, a kid's comic book series and it started in the 80s I think 84 or 85 is when this when this book first came out it's an interesting example of artists that are creating something entirely for themselves and then it would go on to light the light the world on fire but they i mean they very much kind of created it as a joke they're messing around and like hey wouldn't it be funny if we'd had like a look at this picture of a turtle which is slow but he's also like a martial artist that's pretty funny let's make a comic book about that uh how how do they choose you mentioned that this one's darker but how do they choose that it, it it's going to be adapted into a kids TV show or whatever. There was a weird tradition of that. I don't know if it was a tradition, but that happened quite a bit in the eighties and nineties, and and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was one of them. If you watch the movies, they're they're significantly darker, yet still kids movies um, than the than the cartoon show. But the cartoon show is very like I don't know if you've seen the original one before, but uh, it's very much one a vehicle to sell toys, but two it's extremely ridiculous and 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 family friendly. But at one point, um, there, there's this really bad movie called the toxic avenger that's by uh um it's from trauma which was this this video release thing collective sorry i can't talk today that made really bad really cheap movies and toxic avenger had like like heads being run over by cars and like graphic sex graphic violence um but very cheap so the violence was like ridiculous and it essentially had followed this guy who was torment he was a janitor at a at a um uh, a gym a gym and he's tormented by the jocks and they eventually like dress him up in like a tutu and like he makes out with a goat he thinks he's making out with a girl and he falls through a window and he falls into a vat of toxic toxic waste and he becomes the toxic avenger world's oh, first gosh. superhero from new jersey ridiculous <laughs> ridiculously violent language is terrible and they adapted it into the toxic avengers which is a children's cartoon show <laughs> I have never heard of that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Don't look it up. Just don't look it up. I but won't. It's okay. It, it, it became a, a fairly popular TV show. I mean, it wasn't anything like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, but kind of a knockoff of that. So it was there. And I, I think for Ninja Turtles in particular, it wasn't an R-rated dark. It was violent. There was there was language in it, but it wasn't anything like like a teenage boy wouldn't read. Um, so it was appropriate from that level. But it's interesting because it was it was very much like a parody of certain things that were going on. Like it was a parody of like Daredevil comics. Um, like instead of the Hand Clan, you have the Foot Clan. Uh, instead <laughs> of instead of um, stick which is daredevil's uh teacher you have you know splinter you have the rat so it's interesting to see those those things it's absurd but it's also it's very compelling it's interesting because they they shared the artwork and that they wanted both of their styles to blend into one so they would work on a page work on a panel and just pass it over unfinished to the to the other writer or to the other they were writers and and illustrators and he would continue the drawing so the drawings are very interesting they're cool they're black and white and they're very much written with black and white in mind a little similar to to mouse um i mean it's also an independent comic clearly not as you know renowned as as mouse it is teenage mutant ninja turtles um but yeah it was fun and and the this this collection has a nice little commentary on on every issue and what what in the world they were thinking when they when they put these together and just doing it themselves like they released they printed themselves three thousand issues of the first issue and it sold out immediately and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and then they started to get the contacts from, you know, Viacom and they they started to sell it as a as children's programming, but they didn't lose the rights to it. They kept putting out these kind of dark, uh, dark stories involving Ninja Turtles. That's interesting. I wonder if there are any other comics out there where it's like that that mesh of the two different people uh drawing do you know any any more like that not no not really not off the top of my head i mean you you do get multiple illustrators within single issue comics a lot of times they'll do something where it's like okay we're gonna go into a dream sequence or something that would require like maybe there's a, a drug hallucination that would require a different art style and that way the artists can kind of share share duties with that um so there is a little bit of blending or they'll try to mock each other's style 
but they certainly don't sit next to each other and and draw over each other's drawings. Um, and it blends. You can't really tell. There's maybe one one uh, page in the first or second issue where it's a cityscape, and it looks very different. It's not the jaggedy lines. It's very straight lines, and that's one of them drawing that one, but it works with what they're attempting to do because it's a very open, open space. We talked about before the, the comic industry just collapsing, and part of the reason was because of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, really? There were so many um, imitations of it imitations that were printed like ad infinitum and dropped off at comic book stores and then they didn't sell and you know you've got thousands of these comics that didn't sell and that really also helped contribute to the collapse i talked before like there's a multitude of reasons why the comics industry collapsed and and that was one of them and you could see that in in 90s like children's programming you had like street sharks biker mice from mars like all these ridiculous things that were coming out where you're like this is just Teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I, I looked honestly, up. A, go ahead. I kind of want you just to write a blog post for our website about the collapse of the comic industry. That'd be so interesting. <laughs> I should, especially from this aspect. So I looked up what some of those those books were that came out, and this is from Wikipedia. But among them, you had the adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you the adult thermonuclear samurai elephants. <laughs> and my, my favorite is, and I don't know what these are, I've never seen them, but my favorite title is The Preteen Dirty Gene Kung Fu Kangaroos. I love that one the best. Yeah, that's absolutely the best one. It's great. <laughs> so It also for- reminds me, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, um, that whole drawing style, passing it back and forth, that reminds me of the exercises we used to do in my creative writing class where you'd write a sentence and then you'd pass it to the next yeah. person and soon you have this mod podge of, of uh, a story. Yeah. Oh, I love those things. There's a book called Yates is Dead and I, <laughs> I, I was about to say I don't remember who wrote it, but that's because they followed that method in that somebody would write one chapter then pass it off to another Irish writer and they would write the next chapter, but they would have no idea what was coming to them and they would mess with each other. They would have something ridiculous. I remember the only thing I remember about the book is at one point, a chapter ends with this weird S&M scenario. Oh, boy. <laughs> and you could tell it was like the writer just wanted to be like, ah, all right, you deal with this next person. <laughs> <laughs> and it was dealt with very well. Yates is dead. I haven't read it in, in years and years, but uh, recommend that that's, one. To... That's interesting. I'll have to read that. That sounds funny. It's good okay. stuff. So I recommend it if you like comics. Um, it's also interesting from the standpoint of you can you can really from issue one to issue seven, I think it ends on the art becomes progressively better okay. working on it just constantly. And these are 40 page comics. They're lengthy comics. So you can take a look at the first issue and the last issue and go, oh, OK, they really, really grew as artists there. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, I went to my boyfriend dragged me to Barnes & Noble again yesterday. I went to <laughs> I went to the the graphic novel section and I was looking at some stuff. I picked up one book and I was like considering getting it, but then I looked at the stack that I had in my hand and I was like, this is gonna be expensive. So I put it back and I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. Dang it. I'll have to I'll have to look it up and see if I can find it. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. That is the the, the downside of print graphic novels is they are. They are expensive. Uh, Image Comics, famously, the majority of their volume ones, they sell for 10 bucks. Now, the, the additional volumes will be 14 to $16, just depending on the length. But they want people to get into their comics, so they kind of operate at a loss with those ones. I don't know if at a loss, but significantly cheaper. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, I just, I just heard a, a ding dong, and I was like, what the heck is that? My phone my phone notifies me when someone visits our website. I was like, oh, we oh, have nice. a new website visitor. Isn't that oh, so nice. exciting? Hopefully it's not a Russian hacker or something. <laughs> uh, hopefully not. We had someone from Ireland the other day. That was exciting. Nice. Nice. Yeah. International yeah. audience. Oh, yeah. We're, we're getting big with our our 20 people. That was Global. Cool. <laughs> Global domination. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah. So I, um, as I said, I read The Deep yesterday. 
So I don't have anything that I'm currently reading, but I have something that I want to read, which I like. I hesitate to to tell you about this because I feel like every time I'm like, oh, I'm going to read this next, I always read something different. But I got this book from the library and it is, they covered up the name of the person. Okay. It is Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett. I've heard such great things about this. I'm also a little scared because it's it's about 500 pages long and the text is very small. So, I may be reading this for a while. But, it's basically about this thief, and she is sent to steal an artifact of unimaginable power. An object that could revolutionize the magical technology known as scribbing? Scribing. I don't know. Um, And then she is, she steals a thing, and she is then chased, and people want her dead. So that sounds fun. It's a fantasy, or a sci-fi fantasy, which is interesting, because I do not read sci-fi. Also, also, I know we talked about Afrofuturism in an episode a long time ago, but The Deep deep is considered Afrofuturism, which I did not know. I I think Afrofuturism is such a wide thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely an umbrella term. Yeah. So I am, I'm going to read Foundry Side next, I think. And we'll see what happens. Nice. I always change my mind. But yeah, what are you reading? <laughs> I am uh, currently reading Nihilism <laughs> by Nolan Gertz, which is like, yeah, I wanted something uplifting for the week. So I wrote oh, yeah. a book about, st- started reading a book about Nihilism. Um, but I picked this one up because I, I went through all of, I searched on Amazon for the MIT Essential Knowledge Series, and I looked through everything. And they have such a wide variety of philosophy but also science books they have books on ai um the really really cool stuff and written in a way that's easy to understand and i think that's what's always always scared me away from getting into philosophy is I'm like ah, i'm not gonna i don't think i'm gonna understand that but these ones are are, are very different um, and, and they're written by contemporary philosophers at least the philosophy ones uh, and I don't, I don't know much I'm gonna ask you a question here because the book kind of addresses this what what do you think nihilism is what I believe nihilism is in my very limited knowledge of the subject is that everything sucks and <laughs> and it's terrible and life is awful okay all right. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely close to it. And that's one of the things it's and it gets a little confusing to start is the, the author writes that so many people accuse other people of nihilism that it's it, it ends up being one of those things where it's like, do, does anybody actually know what this <laughs> what this means? It's kind of like postmodernism, which is addressed in the books. Like, does anybody know what they're what they're talking about with this one? And <laughs> And the way the author goes about this is he presents it first as here's what it's here's what people say about it and then here's what it's not and then here's what it is because all i knew about nihilism was that train spotting on the back of train spotting there was a review that positively called it nihilistic and and the big lebowski have you seen the big lebowski i haven't but my at my last job they used to talk about it all the time i was like maybe i should maybe i should watch this but i never did you should watch it. It's a it's a great movie. But there's 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 these German nihilists that are sent to uh, to uh, attack Lebowski, and they're like, "Ja, Lebowski, we are nihilists. We believe in nothing." <laughs> this is like the famous, <laughs> famous line there. So that's all I that's all I knew about. Nihilism. That was a great accent. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> I posted. I was talking about it in the Discord, then I posted something from the Big Lebowski, and then I I deleted it because uh, Walter, who's he's a Vietnam vet clearly has ptsd but he also like goes on these like philosophy tangents or these weird like political correct tangents like he'll just yell at people there's a coffee shop scene where he's he's yelling at the waitress because she's like please keep your voice down he's like my buddies didn't die face down in the mud i'm exercising (laughs) my freedom and at the same time lebowski calls calls somebody the chinaman and he stops and he's like whoa 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 China, Chinaman is not the correct nomenclature, dude. <laughs> Asian American, please. <laughs> so they're talking about the nihilist. He's, he's like, we'll say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, but at least it's an ethos. <laughs> so I posted that and I was like, I think everyone's seen The Big Lebowski, but yeah, I take that down just in case they, <laughs> in case they have. When did that come out? That, that came out in the 90s. 
And I and I bring that scene up because like Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche is, is very much tied in with nihilism, even though he only really started to write about nihilism um, around the time of his death. And it was really scattered throughout his notebooks. But Walter, the character, you know, when they bring up nihilism, talks about national socialism. And, 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 and I've heard this before, but the author talks about this as well, is that he... He was very much tied in with Nazism, but what actually happened was his sister and her brother-in-law were in charge of his estate, and they were Nazi sympathizers. He was not. He was not anti-Semitic, and he did not sympathize with them at all, but they essentially wrote things as him into his texts and released them after he died, which is where that where that tie comes from. And and his takes on nihilism are are particularly complicated because, again, they were kind of scattered throughout notebooks and and she assembled them and and put them together. So it gets a little difficult to to parse out. So so I like the series because it, it does give a lot of clarity of like if you don't know a lot about these these particular philosophers and she you know she starts with Socrates um he didn't talk specifically about nihilism but he talked about things you could define as nihilism it gives you a broad range of of knowledge in a quick and easy to to digest way which I I thought was pretty interesting so it starts with it starts by talking about Socrates and and his cave where Socrates kind of said like are you familiar with that concept? Yeah, I read that in college. Yeah, it's for any listeners that aren't familiar and forgive me if I screw this up, you probably clarify. It's essentially like we you can you can imagine humans living inside of a cave kind of like a prison but they're not aware of it um and they're not aware that there's an outside world and they've lived there their whole life so with when any evidence from the outside world comes in like they're more liable to attack that evidence than to accept it as reality is that correct did i get that right yeah, yeah, like they see shadows on the wall, so that's kind of their evidence as to there's more out in the world, but they don't actually, they're not able to comprehend right. a, a different reality than what they've known. Right, right. And and, and the author, t- I keep saying the author, I, I need to look up, I, I don't know if it's male or female, I think it's Nolan, but it's spelled N-O-L-E-N, Nolan Gertz is the author of author of this book. Nolan, G G U R G E R T Z. Let's see. It is a dude. Okay, I can clarify. I felt weird saying just the author thought. <laughs> the author said, <laughs> and now I lost my uh, I lost my train. Oh, so the author posits this is like this is an early example of nihilism. When, when people are aware that there's another reality, but they purposely choose to search for meaning with that or allow that evidence to come in, that could be considered a definition of, of nihilism. Interesting, too. Like he talks about one of the, the strongest definitions, like surrendering, surrendering your authority to another source. And thereby, like he uses MLK as an example, like the, like the deification of, of MLK is a, is a way for people to not be active. And I think we do see this sometimes, not be active with civil rights issues. Um, you see that a lot as like, well, we had MLK and everything solved. You know what I mean? Like, the, and that's a surrender of authority. That's an example of nihilism. It's denying the reality of the way that things are. By not by not allowing the humanity of 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 people in, which I thought was really interesting, um, and then the idea of too of just and the existentialists talk about this just just being human as an excuse. It's kind of like boys will be boys as an excuse. Like, well, that's just human nature. Like, no, that's that's a little nihilistic to just like pass it off as something that you can't overcome or to excuse things that are that are inexcusable. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then you kind of touched upon this with with what you were reading this week, that little philosophical tangent. But he talks he talks quite a bit about using like not talking about events. He uses World War II as an example, like particularly as an American society, we're very good about like we don't talk about that anymore. Okay, it's done. It's done. Nothing bad happened. We don't need to talk about like the bad things that happened and the and the reverberations that that are are happening today because of it. We just don't. 
We don't talk about it. We go to life as normal. And, and that would be an example of nihilism, de- denying the reality of something and not, and thus not making progress, not making human progress, which I thought was a cool little tie. And talks about how nostalgia very much is an example of that, um, like trying to revert to childhood when you didn't really have to think about forging your own meaning. Um, because it's not necessarily a philosophy of, of meaninglessness. Like it does find things as meaningless, but it, it doesn't want you to certain schools of thought with nihilism. It doesn't want you to escape into like nostalgia. It wants you to face that meaningless and as a human being, try to forge your own meaning and, and thus make progress in, in that way. So, so I thought, I think it's a great little overview of nihilism and I'll leave it with this. This is the best example I thought, um, I thought he used by removing the false sources of meaning we rely on, such as God or DNA, we can confront the fact that we are alone and embrace the consequence of that fact that we are alone, that we alone are capable of giving meaning to our lives. There you go. That sounds so interesting. I know my boyfriend would be all over that book, so I'm going to have to order that for him. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know what to expect. I was like, is this a pro nihilism like book? Like what is the And I guess it kind of is, but from the standpoint of like when we think of people as philosophical nihilists, they're they're more likely to be pointing out nihilism and trying to get past that, not like, yay, nihilism, let's live in meaninglessness. Because there are philosophers that that do that. And she talks about that. Um James Tartaglia, I think, was one where he very much was like there is no inherent meaning in anything, and the only solution is to just <laughs> pretend like there is. Oh, what a sad way to live. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, yeah, you're talking about, like, postmodern art and all of that stuff, and it's all, this art is, like, there is no point to the art. Like, that's the whole, that's the whole postmodern thing. At least from, from the art 101 I took mm-hmm. in college. And I'm like, can we just have art that's like good, you know? <laughs> and it doesn't have to be just be like, I made this and it doesn't mean anything, you know? Like there's that whole thing about the banana that was duct taped to a wall a couple years ago yeah. and it sold for a couple million dollars or something. Yeah. And I was like, why? I don't get it. I have I have a bone to pick with art. <laughs> Far be it from me to, to criticize a lot of that, but a lot of it becomes like a class issue, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, but at the same time, like I love Warhol. I love I love that kind of like just very avant-garde abstract art. Probably next week we can get into postmodernism a little bit because that's that's where I do fault this book because it looks a little too friendly on postmodernism. Postmodernism as art, I think, is fine. But in the sciences, I think it has, it's been very, very detrimental to society to, to, to basically say like, like as much as you can define postmodernism, everything is a narrative. Therefore, like we give our own meaning to everything. So like, there's not really scientific facts because we provide, those are human discovered things. There's essentially, they're essentially meaningless and you know, that, that bleeds into science debates nobody's nobody's up there saying like ah this is my postmodernist take but in terms of like just making stuff up and saying that it's reality that's a dangerous thing right now it's been dangerous for a while so she look he looks yeah. a little too friendly upon postmodernism i feel like but i also like books that i can disagree with so i'm glad that's in there yeah that's really interesting when people argue with science i'm like what are you doing <laughs> you know science is science yeah and that anyway we don't need to get into that. I'll just get mad. Anyway. <laughs> Save for next week. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So we had a recommendation and question coming from Laura. And just a quick little plug. If you want us to recommend you a book, all you have to do is go to our website, which I'll have in the show notes. It's litthesedayspodcast.com. And there's a little button that you can click and it says, get recommendation. It's very simple. It's got to fill out the thing. You can, you can ask us. For something in a specific genre you can maybe ask us for a book that you 
that is similar to another book that you read, something like that. Um, Books to read when you're in a particular mood, maybe. Yes. Oh, that would be great. That would be fun. Yeah. So we need more recommendations. Send send us your your questions and and we'll answer them on the show. And also, you can. I'll just plug the rest of our stuff too. We have a Discord, (laughs) which I will have in the show notes, and we also have an Instagram where we share very fun photos of our books at Lit These Days Podcast. And that is all the things that I have to plug. But we had a recommendation question come in from Laura, who says, I just read Shirley Jackson for the first time, and while I can't say I enjoyed it, in fact, I often felt queasy slash icky slash upset, I can't stop thinking about it and want to read more. Any thoughts on what to read next, and do you know of any good literary criticism of the lottery and other short and other stories? Now, I said I had a bone to pick with art earlier, but I also have a bone <laughs> to pick with the educational system. And I have a question for you, Adam. Sure. Have you ever taught the lottery by Shirley Jackson in school? No, but my wife has, and there's a funny story to go along with it. You got to tell the story. Should we explain what the lottery is if people don't know what it is first? Yes, I think so. Do you want to go ahead with that? Yeah, I can do that. So, I would I would pause. If you've never read the lottery, it's very short. It will not take long to get through. I would. And if you don't know anything about it, I would pause here mm-hmm. and then come back after you read it. Yeah. So I I think it's like, what, six to ten pages. It's very short. Yeah, it's like 10 and 15 minutes. And you can find it anywhere online because it came out in like the 1950s or something but anyway so it's basically about this town and they're all like getting together you know it's it's very beautiful imagery they're like um they're having a lottery and that sounds fun and so they all get together and they start pulling slips out of this box and whoever or the the men of the families they start pulling slips out of this box and whoever gets a black dot their family all the all the members of their family have to also pull um slips of paper out of this box and whoever gets the black dot out of that box they get stoned to death which is yeah that's the whole premise of the story it's real am i missing anything it's real uplifting no It's been a while since yeah. I've read it, but yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. What is your your story to tell about that? My wife decided to have a lottery in her class and stone a kid to death. No, I'm kidding. Um, but oh she, <laughs> she decided to do a similar simulation simulation without having read the lottery yet. So this was this was the introduction to the lottery. So she pulled a kid aside and said, "Hey, we're going to do this as a class. I'm going to make people pull their grades." out of a hat um and she's like i'm gonna make something up of like this is a new like school level thing and that like the grades have to balance out so like one person has to take she had eighth graders so they fell for this Uh, so like somebody has to take one for the team and get the f and then the rest of the class can get the a's and it you know balances out and then you don't have to have b's and c's and blah 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 and eighth graders can be very gullible because they did believe this but she told this kid like you're gonna be the f like i don't want to upset some random kid so you're gonna be the f um, I will hand off the F to, or I think she put all A's in there and said, just say that it's an F. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So she did this with the group and those kids were so pissed. They didn't talk to her <laughs> for like a week. <laughs> she actually, oh my gosh. yeah, she said she, she just wouldn't do it again. Like she would teach the lottery again, but she never did that simulation again because they were so upset <laughs> by this. And she kept saying, she was like, guys, like, None of you got the F. They're like, but we believed you. And she's like, yes, but the person that got the F knew they were getting the F. Okay. They acted like they didn't know, but like, I didn't, I didn't do anything untowards towards some random student in the class. And they're like, no, we can never forgive you for this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We Not teenagers. Then the lottery made them even angrier about that. <laughs> but I thought, I was like, man, I wouldn't, maybe I'm just cruel, but I would totally keep, <laughs> to me, I was like, that's a mark of success. Keep, <laughs> keep doing that. <laughs> So that is the that's the lottery story. I have not had a chance to teach it. It's either not been in the curriculum or I just haven't had the right grade level to to teach it or the right class. Yeah, I here's the thing is that this book or this story is is very dark. Hmm. I mean, in in when I read it, I believe I was in 8th grade as well. 
And it starts out, I mean, it's called the lottery. Like, it sounds like a good thing is going to happen. Yeah. And it, it has all this beautiful imagery in it. Like, I don't know, like the, the flowers are, are blooming and, and uh, there are these boys that are running around picking up stones, which I thought was a weird boy thing. I don't know. It sounded like they were having fun. I yeah. don't know. It's like an agrarian um, community, too. So, yeah. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, this person gets stoned to death. And I was like, what the heck is happening? And I was like, well, I read this when I was like 13. No, I read it in seventh grade because I, I took an advanced English class. I was like 13. And I was like, why? Why are we giving this to 13-year-olds? That is very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, like, the, the things that I have taught in ninth grade tend to lean towards the dark side because that's – the kids really get into into those things you know it's okay. right that kind of teenagey angst kind of yeah kind of era um so things get things get pretty depressing but they also very much get into the readings of those um now it's been a long time since i've read the rot- the lottery and, and you may have just just said this but was it was it a was it a harvest thing like was it a, a superstition was it a population control thing i can't i don't recall i think it was just a tradition that they had I think it was a harvest thing. Like it was the tradition, but it was like to bring a bountiful harvest. Somebody uh, has to make the make the sacrifice. I don't know. I didn't. I'll have to go back and look at that. I'm not sure. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was just too sensitive as a kid, but I remember being angry <laughs> that I had to read that. I mean, you're only going to remember that part, right? Like yeah. my my wife, um, she hates of mice and men, and she when the when the event at the end of the book happens uh she threw the book down and like ran out of the room like the classroom <laughs> and she never read the rest of the book and i'm always like yeah but you know what he was trying to do here she's like i don't care i don't care what steinbeck was trying to do i don't i don't want to yeah. think about that book i was like okay so like that no. definitely happens when you read things at a younger age yeah that's interesting because now i'm just thinking about how um like i did not like the lottery because that went that i read that when i was 13 mm-hmm. But I read Of Mice and Men for one of my AP English classes when I was a senior, and I really liked it. And then I got into, like, dark stuff, like, dark fantasy books and all this stuff. But now I'm kind of like, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff in the world. Let's just read a lot of romance. Let's read a lot (laughs) of fun stuff. So it's interesting to see how your your reading tastes change over time like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, that's the lottery. If you haven't read it, go read it. I'm gonna go reread it because I can't recall, but I'm almost positive that's that's the reason for it at the end. So do you want to go over your recommendations first? Yes. So I was gonna recommend this short story called The Cold Equations, and it's by let me scroll up to the top of the page here. It's by Tom Godwin. And it's basically about Short story, but it's like 10,500 words. And you can find it online pretty much anywhere. And it's basically about um, this society where they're in space, and, but there's it's very sparsely populated. Like people have left Earth and they're going to all these different planets and exploring. Um, and there are big ships that are just kind of going around and they have littler ships inside of them. For if anyone needs any help, then they can be dispatched and uh, go help these other people on these other planets. But the thing is that these ships, they only have enough fuel in them for this, the mission to be completed. And so what we get is uh, there is a ship that's on, on the way to uh, six people on this other planet who have gotten fever and they need medicine or they're going to die. And the ship open or the the story opens when the the navigator of the ship realizes that there's a stowaway on board. And the issue with that is uh, this the ship only has enough fuel for the weight that's been calculated. So the stowaway is going to really screw things up. Mm-hmm. And so normally when they'd find a stowaway, they would just kick them off right away, and then they'd have to readjust. I don't know math to science, and and they'd make they'd make their way safely to the planet. But 
the issue with this is that there, it's a an 18-year-old girl, and normally stowaways are men. I don't know. There's an 18-year-old girl who's just trying to make it to her brother on another planet. Um, and so the the captain of the ship can't bring himself to kick her off the ship and, like, kill her, basically. Yeah. So, And it's kind of like a philosophy. Like, I can keep her on the ship, but eventually these six people on the planet are going to die. And they probably also won't make it to the planet either. So all eight of them will die. It's either eight of them will die or this girl dies. But so I thought that was a really interesting premise for a story. And I got about halfway through it and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to recommend this because it's very sexist. What I found is it's all like this was published in 1954. Hmm. So I think that has something to do with it. Science but it's like 1954 isn't always <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and, it, and it's all like this she's just 18 she's a girl she's dumb and young and stupid and and she didn't know what she was doing and blah 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 and it's basically just like i don't know th- there were signs that told her to keep out like yeah i mean you th- why is why is it a debate just because she's a woman and just because she's young like i don't there should always be consequences for your actions. I didn't. Un- I didn't understand the the issue that she was just a girl, you know. And that was right. the whole premise of the story. I thought that was very sexist, so I'm not recommending that one because I didn't like it. But what I am recommending is something that I actually I read, and I have no idea where I read it before, but um, I started reading it, and I was like, I've I've read this before. But I can't remember where. And it is The Velt by Ray Bradbury. Have you hmm. have you read this one before? I've read I've read quite a bit of Bradbury, but not The Velt. Yeah, so it's a very short story. And it's basically about this family who lives in a smart house. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Smart House. It's a, it was a Disney Channel movie. But it gave me that kind of vibe where this house like ties your shoes for you. It does your laundry for you. It brings you ketchup if you need it right to your table yeah and there's also this nursery for their kids the kids are like i I would say they're like 10 and like 12 and the nursery what it can do is it's basically four walls with big screens and the kids can put anything they want up on the screens and I it's actually been developed by psychologists to study kids and these kids have very um, angry and uh, they, they have a lot of issues inside of them um, so it's basically just for the psychologist to study them and study what they they like to do I guess I don't know and they've put Africa up on up on these um, these screens and it's it's getting very real. Like, they're, it, they are screens, but it's kind of like Africa is kind of coming out and, 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 and it's turning from virtual reality into reality. And I won't give away the ending because it's very much a spoiler, but if you're looking for something that starts out very innocent and kind of cutesy and then just takes a turn towards the end, The Velt by Ray Bradbury. That's, I think that's what you should check out. Nice. Very nice. That first, I should have, I should have stopped at the end of that first recommendation. Maybe I'll cut this in later. Um, that, what was the name of that first story? The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin. So that sounds like it's based on the trolley problem. Are you, are you familiar with the trolley problem? Yeah, I've heard of that before. Yeah, it seems like it's that psychological concept of, you know, do you, there's somebody, I, I'm going to screw it up probably, but there's, you know, there's a train coming, you can push the large man onto the track and save the people further down the track, or you can choose not to kill him and it's going to kill the people further, further down the track. It's weighing those moral issues. Yeah, I get that. I, I get that it's kind of like that, but the the commander of the ship, He's also going to die if he doesn't kick her off. So it's not just like these six people are going to die or this girl. He's also going to die. Right. So it's like in my head, I'm like, this is a, this is a no brainer situation. You kick her off because she yeah. knew there were there were signs there that said keep out, and she did not. Right. Exactly. 
Yeah, and that, I, I'd like to say, well, maybe the sexism is purposely there. Is like, well, what happens if you introduce an equation to a sexist society? But then I remember what science fiction writing is like from the 1950s, and it's probably not as nuanced as, as that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Any other recommendations? I couldn't find any good literary criticism, so I don't have anything for that. But um, yeah, that I did recommend that story. That's all I had for that. Cool. I'll check that out too. I like I like Bradbury for the most part. He can be a little overwritten at times, but that sounds like a good one. Short. So in terms of stories and books for recommendations, I've talked about this one before, so I won't go in depth, but definitely check out Those Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. Because it's it's that exact theme. Well, it's not the exact theme, but it's the idea of like can you can you stomach being part of a, a utopian society at the expense of a single person? You know what is the what are the ethics that are involved with that? So if you liked the lottery, um, although for Laura it sounds like you were <laughs> you're more thought provoked and disgusted by it, which like that's a mark of a good story to me. Then then check out those who walk away from Oblast. It's very very good. I hesitate to recommend Scythe, the Scythe trilogy by Neil Shusterman. I got so disturbed by this book that I, and this is a YA book. I got so disturbed by this book that I, I quit halfway through and was like, nope, can't do this anymore. And oh, I'm not. Because no, I have all three of the books. I just haven't read them yet. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, oh no. It's, it's well written. I think, I think you, I think you might be able to stomach it more than me. Because I can stomach violence. I know you can't. Um, mm-hmm. The violence in here is not explicit at all which I found interesting um, in that it still disturbed me. And it might be because I have kids, you know, your tastes change with certain, certain events in your life. But it's essentially, from what I remember, there are Grim Reapers, you know, they're part of the society and, and they keep the population in balance. So they, they don't kill people based on old age. They kill people randomly, you know, very similar to the lottery um, to keep population under control. And, and the people don't suffer. It's kind of an instantaneous thing, but they're also aware that it's going to happen. So you have scenes where, you know, the Grim, whenever the Grim Reapers are around, I think they're just called the, the Reapers or maybe, maybe not. Whenever they're around, everybody's on edge because they're like, well, they're around because like they're, they're probably about to to kill somebody that sounds so stressful yeah yeah and people become aware like oh i'm the one they're after so they'll run away but there's really no running away from them and and they're killed in public spaces i think it's the most yeah disturbing part so you like you might be at the mall and they show up and if you're if your number's up then you you get the axe you get the scythe my gosh so to speak yeah yeah and i was just like Nope, that's too much for me. <laughs> that's way too much for me. Um, but it's also, if I'm remembering correctly, it doesn't happen. Like statistically, it doesn't happen very often. Um, so the odds, so there is that interesting moral issue of like, well, the odds are really not in your favor. But again, you you could get the axe at any time, just like just like death. Um, and it may be one of those things that like I. I th- I think they live for long, long, long periods of time, or maybe there is no natural death, and that's why it has to take place. Um, and from what I understand, the rest of the series is very much like that's part of the disturbing part too. Is kids, kids, young adults are like enrolled as as reapers, and they're the kids that you oh. follow. And one is not okay with it, but you have no choice. And the other one is seems like he's okay with it so they start to they start to uncover things that are going on within the society of the scythes themselves uh and i think that's that's the direction that the series goes in so if you can stomach it go for it i couldn't and i thought that was weird because again dawn of the dead favorite movie filmed here in pittsburgh um but yeah right i I would recommend those two as the as the fictions so Oh, also, as long as we're talking about violence, um, the deep, the deep also has kind of graphic scenes. So that's another reason why I thought you, I thought you would like it because you yeah, can like you can go through that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. I have some criticism to recommend. Okay, awesome. Um, and I've not I've not read I've I've read a little bit of this this criticism. Uh, if you can track it down. Stephen King, back in, I think, 2003, 2005, released the Stephen King's Horror Library, which he picked his favorite 
novels, Rosemary's Baby um, by Ira Levin, um, Peter Straub's Ghost Story uh, were two of them. And The Haunting of Hill House was one as well. Uh, now, Laura is asking for recommendations based on the lottery. If you liked the lottery or if at least thought-provoking enough, read The Haunting of Hill House. Um, and, and that particular edition, which is kind of hard to find, I found a copy for like 25 bucks on, on Abe Books. That's a little steep when you can get a Penguin edition. Um, but it, it has, a, it has a, a, a good introduction to the story from Stephen King. A cheaper thing that you might be able to find is Dance Macabre by Stephen King, which is nonfiction. Uh, and it's it's all about horror, horror books, horror movies, and, and and criticism and reviews of those things. And there's a lengthy review in there of The Haunting of Hill House. Um, I love The Haunting of Hill House. It's one of my favorite books because it, it has a certain amount of ambiguity to it in that you don't know if the house is actually haunted. You don't know if it's a disturbed woman who's imagining the things, but then there are other people that start to see the things, so they kind of suspect, well, maybe she's projecting them, maybe it's a telekinetic thing. So it's a very psychologically gripping novel, and I, I thought it was great in that you don't really know what's going on, and that's okay. If you like ambiguous endings... Um, that's, that's really a good book to go for. Um, so if you're looking for criticism, particularly of that book, if you end up liking it, Stephen King is the route to go there. Um, and then... I have a question. Yeah. Who wrote The Haunting of Hill House? It wasn't, it wasn't Stephen King? No, Shirley Jackson. Shirley Jackson. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I should have led with that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shirley Jackson wrote that one. She's really known for her disturbing works. Um, and, and most of her works were not that. She had, a, she had a lot written on domestic life and her memoirs and, and, and raising her kids because she was the breadwinner of the family, but she also raised like all of her kids. I think she had like five kids. Oh, um, boy. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was it was tough. I was reading that her husband said, like, these critiques are ridiculous. Like she she liked her life. Like she wasn't lamenting domesticity. And I was like, I need to read more. That seems. Uh... <laughs> uh, and I have more um, because there's a there's a relatively new biography called Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life by Ruth Franklin, which I have a copy of. Um, I just haven't read it. It's it's very, very long. But to give you a brief synopsis, um, instantly heralded for its masterful and thrilling portrayal, Shirley Jackson reveals the tumultuous life and inner darkness of the literary genius behind such classics as The Lottery and The Haunting of Hill House. In its remarkable act of reclamation, says Neil Gaiman, Ruth Franklin envisions Jackson as belonging to the great tradition of Hawthorne, Poe and James and demonstrates how her unique contribution to the canon so uncannily channeled women's nightmares and contradictions that it is nothing less than the secret history of American women of her era. And that's why I have a copy of that book, because that sounds phenomenal. And I think she has a fairly yeah. fascinating life. So there's there's definitely plenty of criticism in there. And then Harold Bloom, remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about Against Empathy, that book? Mm-hmm. His dad is is was a critic, Harold Bloom, um, the author of that book, his father. And he he's received a fair amount of criticism. Um, he's very much a defender of the of the Western canon, and a lot of his reviews can come off as as fairly sexist. But he has uh, a series of of short works. It's called specifically bloom's major short story writers and he has a volume that's pretty easy to find maybe for like 10 12 bucks uh you can find it on a books of specifically shirley jackson and specific criticism of the the short stories and, and i think these are very positive criticisms so you might go that route as as well uh, and if you look on wikipedia there's a whole list of books that you can find and, and just little explanations of what the books are that are surveys of like her her fiction. Um, so there's one in particular, Critical Bibliography of Shirley Jackson, American Writer, Reviews, Criticism, Adaptations. Um, and that's by Paul N. Reinch. There's not a ton of uh, criticism out there. She's kind of kind of had a renaissance over the past few, uh, past decade, maybe. Um, but she was very reticent to promote her own work. And I think that has a lot to a lot to do with it not having heavy criticism um literary criticism 
good word, reticent. I like that word. And also, you were talking about um, her domestic work. And I, I wonder, it reminded me of the yellow wallpaper. Yes. Who wrote that? Uh, Mar Margaret, Margaret, something. Let me, I have to look it up now. The yellow wallpaper. That's an interesting one. I like that story. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I was completely off. There's no Margaret in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh, it's been a while since I read it, but uh, it, what was it about? It's about this woman, His her husband thinks that she's going insane, so she lo- or he locks her in a room with this yellow wallpaper and it's she's starting to have like hallucinations of of the wallpaper like trying to kill her if i remember right yeah it's like trying to strangle her like the patterns yeah. in it are are coming out she's hysterical yeah. which was a medical term invented to describe women <laughs> yeah yeah it's like um, women get hysterical it's it's an actual medical term um it explores that which is you know interesting and very sexist yeah, for sure. And I, I think that that could go with this recommendation as well. If you want to check that out. Um, it, it has a lot to do with isolation. So I don't, if after COVID you're a little sensitive to that, then maybe I would not read that one. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So there's a whole slew of, of recommendations. And I want, to get, I want to get back into Shirley Jackson because... Again, like the lottery and the haunting of Hill House are not necessarily representative of her oeuvre, but um, so I want to see what those other things are like, and I have some of them. I just haven't. They're they're gathering dust. Too many things to read. Not enough time. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, that is the end of our show. Make sure that you check out our website our discord and our instagram which are all in the show notes and thanks everyone so much for listening make sure if you want a recommendation you go to our website and you fill out the form see ya internet people